That's not for nothing. And we saw the, the babies being brought to Jesus and the disciples keeping them away. And Jesus insists, no, God is a God who exalts the humble and he humbles the proud. And a rich ruler comes to him and Jesus tells him what is required to be a follower of him and he finds the cost too high. But as Jesus finally draws near to Jericho, there are two last sheep he needs to bring into his fold before the cross. These are the last Two clear conversions in Luke. The blind man outside of Jericho, and now as Jesus enters Jericho, his interaction with Zacchaeus. After this, Jesus will teach. Jesus will battle with the Pharisees. They'll battle with him. He'll be crucified. But these are really, last week and this week, the last bright notes prior to the cross. And so I'd like to begin our time by reading Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And then we'll see what the Lord has for us. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was in small stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. Lord God, what wonderful news this is, that your Son, who will one day come in judgment, came to seek and to save the lost. How wonderful is that news. And so, Lord, as we witness in this text your Son, Seek and save a lost one. May we learn from it. May we see the glory of our Savior. May we relish his saving of us. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, this is a very familiar passage and yet critical in Luke's placement. These, these last two illustrations, first of the blind man, now of Zacchaeus, drive Jesus' point home from 8.14, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And this, again, is Jesus picking his disciples, the gospel going not to the, the, to the righteous, to the moral, the religious, but to the least likely people. Jesus, after all, in his Opening sermon in his hometown synagogue identified his ministry. The spirit of the Lord is upon me in Luke 4 because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year the Lord's favor. So we're going to look at this text in five points as the narrative goes. First, verses 1 through 4, Zacchaeus' eager initiative in seeing Jesus. Zacchaeus's eager initiative in seeing Jesus. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. 
He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And first, we're introduced to the person, Zacchaeus, his person. And he is, we're told, not just a tax collector. We've met tax collectors before. Back in chapter 5, one of the 12 apostles was Levi, a tax collector. You also know him by Matthew. This is a chief tax collector. So the structure is this. The tax collectors had a tax franchise from Rome. Rome is a foreign power exercising sovereignty over Israel. And Rome collects its taxes. And to some degree, Israel can keep its puppet government in a sense. They don't have any real power. But you certainly are going to pay the coffers to the empire. That's the way Rome set up its empire. And so the tax collectors were those Jews who had turned on their countrymen, had sided with the foreign oppressor, and now had the opportunity enforced by the soldiers. We saw that back with John the Baptist. So the, 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 the sword of the tax collectors, the way they enforced their demands, were the soldiers. And Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. So presumably, he's got tax collectors under him. So you've got Zacchaeus, tax collectors under him, soldiers under them, in a very rich, plentiful city of Jericho. This is right on the trade route, right heading up to Jerusalem, about 12, 12 and a half miles outside of Jerusalem. This is a rich man, but consequently, this is a despised man by his people. We'll see that in a few minutes. I mean, just think of how you would view someone who turns on their own country, sides with a foreign oppressor, and not only that, he's a crook, because he goes above and beyond what he's entitled to take legally, And he can drum up taxes and charges. We'll see he confesses to all of that. This man is a traitor. He's a crook. He's a false accuser, an extortioner. And yet, it's people like this that Jesus came to save. That's his person, the chief tax collector, rich, and a Jew. I say that for a couple reasons. First, his name is Jewish. The Romans didn't esteem the Jews very highly, so it's unlikely a Roman would name their child a Jewish name. But we'll see also later, he has knowledge of the Jewish law, the Torah. So I put that together, and I piece together he's a Jew. He's got a Jewish name. He has understanding of the Jewish scriptures. Wouldn't die on that hill, but that seems like the most likely um, scenario. That's his person. But he's got a problem. He has a problem. Because he wants to see Jesus, but he can't. And so we read, Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So this gives us some more information. Zacchaeus, I think, has had some access to the ministry of John the Baptist. I'll get to that part. I'll explain why I think that's the case. But he's never actually laid eyes on Jesus. That's the stress of the text. He wants to see Jesus. Not even necessarily to hear him. In other words, there's something good here, but it's not amazing. Remember, after all, Herod was seeking to see Jesus, purely as a curiosity. But Nicodemus wants to see Jesus, but he's got a problem. He's small, there's a big crowd, and presumably the crowd is no friend of his. People aren't going to be making way nicely. And so, finally, we get to Zacchaeus' plan. His plan. We've seen his person, his problem, now his plan He's short, he can't see over the crowd, he can't get through the crowd, so he runs ahead and climbs a sycamore tree and basically sees where Jesus and the crowd is going 
and then goes ahead, climbs the tree, and waits. And in this, we see some level and measure of humility. Dignified, rich chief tax collectors don't generally climb trees. I mean, imagine if this morning you came in here and, and Greg Sweet or Dave Lample was in a tree. You're laughing precisely because it's undignified. It looks silly, right? And so I want you to get some of the notes here. He's eager to see Jesus, which by itself isn't conclusive. Herod was. But the man humbles himself. And he he's shows initiative in seeing Jesus. Almost reminds me to some degree of the, the men who dug through the roof to lower their friend through. And part of what we get here is when somebody is seeking Christ, they don't let obstacles get in their way. This man comes up with a plan. He's going to humble himself to some degree. He climbs the sycamore tree. And perhaps he's hoping people wouldn't notice. This time of the year as we're approaching Passover, it would have been green and full. So maybe he was hoping no one would spot him. That plan, if that is indeed his plan, isn't going to work. But that's Zacchaeus' eager initiative. And so we want to give him credit for what's there. He shows initiative. He shows a measure of zeal. He shows some humility in seeking Jesus. Okay, so that's Zacchaeus' eager initiative in seeing Jesus. But now we're going to move to Jesus' sovereign initiative in saving Zacchaeus. Jesus' sovereign initiative in saving Zacchaeus. Okay. First act, Nicodemus, Nicodemus, Zacchaeus, goes ahead, climbs the trees, waiting. Okay. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down. Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. So Jesus is now close to Jerusalem. He's got generally a crowd about him, but now an even larger crowd because three times a year, every faithful, obedient Jewish man had to go to Jerusalem for the feasts. And so there would be streams of travelers headed to Jerusalem. So this is likely a very large crowd. And Luke's been emphasizing various crowds of different sizes. And so Jesus is going through Jericho. And he just stops, looks up, sees Zacchaeus. And the first thing to notice, and I want you to notice the sovereign initiative here. Zacchaeus takes some initiative. Good for him. And yet in this episode of salvation, the decisive initiative is all on Jesus' part. That's why I titled Jesus' sovereign initiative. He, he's taking charge of this. Because seeing Zacchaeus, he named him and calls him down. He sees exactly where Zacchaeus is, looks him in the eye, and then names him. If Zacchaeus had questions about who Jesus might be, might he be a prophet? I'm sure this to some degree helped confirm it. Jesus knows his name. Evidence is supernatural knowledge. And notice it's not a suggestion. He gives an order. He gives a command. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus is acting as a sovereign. He's not, Zacchaeus, would you mind? He names him, hurry up, get down. I must stay at your house today. Again, indicating sovereign necessity. He declares that he must stay at his house that day. And what we see is even though Zacchaeus, from his perspective and from our perspective watching him, takes some initiative, this meeting, this exchange, this event is rooted in God's eternal purposes. I mean, this is amazing. Before God spoke the world into existence, this meeting was set and planned. And so Jesus speaks with that divine necessity. He uses elsewhere that he must go to Jerusalem. I must stay at your house tonight. So Jesus sees him. He names him. He declares that he must stay at his house that day. 
And what does Zacchaeus do? He quickly and joyfully obeys. Jesus says, hurry up and get down, and Luke tells us, so he hurried and came down. Exactly what Jesus said, receiving him joyfully. And already we've seen some shift in his character. I mean, he's been spotted out. He looks kind of foolish up in a tree. And when Jesus tells him this, rather than saying, well, who, who, I'm not kind of a big deal in this town, he joyfully receives Jesus. This is good news to him. It's good news to him. So Jesus takes sovereign initiative. He names him, evidencing supernatural knowledge, and tells him what will be. Hurry up and get down. I must stay in your house today. Now this, of course, is shocking for the crowd. Jesus is growing in a reputation. There's some murmuring, maybe he's the Messiah. We've seen some people saying he's a prophet of God. The blind man just called him the son of David. And yet it's clear that the Jews in Israel expected righteous men and prophets to go by the common protocol. And here is a traitor, a thief, an extortioner. You don't go into their houses. You don't sit down with them. To do so would be to incur guilt on their behalf. The food Jesus would be eating at Zacchaeus' house is food bought by extorted money. Jesus would be eating the food robbed from the poor. That's what they're thinking. And so the people's grumbling complaint against Jesus is next in verse 7. And notice how Luke doesn't distinguish it into groups. Sometimes we're told it's the Pharisees. Sometimes we're told it's the disciples. Sometimes the twelve. Sometimes the crowd. Here it's just everybody. When they saw it, verse 7, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. They're, they're offended by this. This is not good for the crowd, these people. So the complaint is this, that Jesus receives the hospitality of a known sinner. Jesus receives the hospitality of a known sinner. And to receive hospitality, to sit at table with someone, is to evidence fellowship, some level of commonality, some level of agreement. It's why if you look through the Old Testament, when covenants and agreements are made, meals follow. If the covenant made peace between two parties, you evidence that peace through a meal, where you're sharing a loaf, you're sharing a cup, you're sharing a plate of food. It's one of the reasons why in the New Testament we're told that after someone's been excommunicated, we're not even to eat with them. We're not to extend that level of commonality and acceptance. And so the thought is, Jesus, by virtue of receiving his hospitality, is accepting him, he's approving of him. Well, not necessarily. We've seen Jesus eat in far worse places, have we not? Turn back to chapter 14. Verse 1. One Sabbath, he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. And Jesus didn't just accept this guy. Jesus didn't just say, well done, good job, I'll take it from here. He first rebuked his guests, then he rebuked and instructed the host, and then told them they'd be shut outside of the kingdom. So Jesus can eat with sinners without fundamentally approving of them. We don't, this crowd doesn't know what Jesus is going to say. Perhaps Jesus is going to go rebuke Zacchaeus. But the crowd grumbles and complains, not even against 
Nicodemus, it's Nicodemus, I keep saying Nicodemus, Zacchaeus, but against the Lord. That's no small thing. They're grumbling and complaining against Jesus. And in this, they echo the same complaint as the Pharisees. Turn back to chapter 15. Now, this complaint about who Jesus eats with, who he shares table fellowship with, is not a new complaint in the gospel. What is new is it spreads now not from the Pharisees who've exclusively said it before. First came up in chapter 5 when he ate at Levi's house and the Pharisees grumbled. But then broadly in chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. It's awfully close to what this crowd in Jericho is saying, isn't it? The only difference is in 15, Jesus is the one giving hospitality. And he's welcoming sinners and tax collectors to his table. And in 19, he's receiving the hospitality. But it's a near identical complaint. Does not speak well for this crowd. Sadly, this crowd, and presumably some of them have been present for Jesus' teaching. Perhaps some of these people just joined this crowd here from Jericho, but he just told the parable where a tax collector is the one who is justified in chapter 18. This crowd, point C, they have not received Jesus' teaching. They may have been ignorant of it. Maybe some of these people in this crowd haven't been there for the whole journey. I don't know. But what is clear Jesus' teaching, his ethic, they have not picked up. They're echoing the words of the Pharisees. Jesus' teaching has been clear. Turn back to chapter 15. Chapter 15 has got some of the most wonderful stories and parables in the Bible. Jesus responds to the grumbling of the Pharisees first with the story of the lost coin. A woman lost one of ten coins. And she searches for it high and low. And when she finds it, she rejoices. Verse 7, so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Let me go from 1 in 10. I'm sorry. Yeah, 1 in 10. No, 100 sheep. Wow. 1 in 100, the shepherd goes searching for one lost sheep to 1 in 10, the woman who searches for the coin, the, the, uh, the moral there, verse 10, just so I tell you, there's joy in heaven before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. From one of the hundred sheep to one in ten coins to one of two sons. And in every instance, Jesus is emphatic. Heaven has great, abundant joy over the conversion of one lost sinner. Those, those parables come out as Jesus defends his practice of welcoming sinners and tax collectors. Now, get it, repentant sinners and tax collectors. But he welcomes them. And this crowd hasn't picked up on that. They grumble and complain against the Lord. Okay. The next actor in this drama then is Zacchaeus. Point four. Next we get Zacchaeus's public confession of repentance and faith. Zacchaeus's public confession of repentance and faith. Now, the location at which this takes place is not entirely certain. Some people, because it says Zacchaeus stood up, assume they're already in Zacchaeus' house. The problem is that Jesus' speech assumes others are present listening. And Luke hasn't told us that we've moved anywhere. Look, look at what Jesus says in verse 10. 
and 9. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. He's talking to Zacchaeus about Zacchaeus, presumably for third parties to hear. And so the verb in verse 8 translated that he stood up could mean he, he took a stand. He made a decision. He, he's, I think the NIV even says he said here and now. That's the way they take it. So I think it's more likely that we haven't moved very far yet. Perhaps Zacchaeus' house is in sight because Jesus does reference this house. But the crowd is still somewhere present. The people's complaint is ringing in his ears. Zacchaeus speaks up. And this man is a very changed man here in verse 8. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. What is he calling Jesus? Lord. Jesus has come to his conclusions about who Jesus is very quickly. Very quickly. And you wonder, how do I get repentance and faith out of this? By its fruit. Luke has emphasized what faith requires to follow Jesus, what, what his ethic is. And Zacchaeus' confession of what he is purposing to do evidences that faith and repentance have taken place in his heart. Now that phrase, if I have, in the Greek, it's a first-class conditional sentence. It assumes that the case is true. So he's saying, if or whoever I've defrauded and I have defrauded... I restore it fourfold. He's going to give half its possessions to the poor. This is absolutely remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. He commits to repay. He commits, sorry, he commits to give half his goods to the poor. He commits to give half his goods to the poor. Now, the most immediate foil to this is the rich young ruler, is it not? What did Jesus demand to the rich young ruler? Look back in chapter 18, verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. This is also a command that Jesus has given more generally to all of his disciples. Back in chapter 12, 33, Jesus said to them all, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. So here's a man who is... Besetting sin is greed and covetousness. He's stolen. He's falsely accused. He's betrayed his people all for wealth, all for gain. And this man, in, in a few moments' time, becomes generous, compassionate. He's going to give away half his money to the poor. He, this is a man whose God is no longer money. And we can tell by the evidence of what he does. The, the other contrast, the rich young ruler has to be told explicitly by Jesus what he must do. This, this man volunteers it. It comes right out of his heart, I think genuinely. He will give half his goods to the poor and he commits to repay those he has defrauded. He commits to repay those he has defrauded for Fold, which again is remarkable. Now in the law of Moses, and this is one of the places where I get that he evidences he's aware of the law, the requirement to repay for theft was 20%. So listen to Leviticus 6.4. If he has sinned and has realized his guilt, he will restore what he took by robbery 
or what he got by oppression, or deposit that was committed to him, the thing that was found, he shall confess what he has committed. He shall make full restitution of his wrong, adding a fifth to it. Numbers 5, 7 as well. So 20% was the standard under the law. However, there was an exceptional case. If you stole cattle and took it by force, according to Exodus 22, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. This is the same standard that David jumps to when Nathan tells him the story of the man who stole the, the sheep. He must repay fourfold. What, what's the point? One of the things we see about genuine repentance, I deal so often with people who want to know the minimum they have to do. What's the minimum I have to do in following Jesus? What's the minimum I have to do in fighting this sin? I got caught, okay. What's the minimum? This guy wants to do the maximum. He volunteers to do it. No one's twisting his arm behind his back. Jesus doesn't even have to give him a demand. He's, he wants to make right. He, he gets the wrong he's done, the debt he's incurred, and he will do the extreme example. I mean, maybe you've thought, well, he gets to keep half his money. I think the reason he's keeping half his money is so he can pay this debt. Jericho is a large town. He's a chief tax collector. And think of what he's setting himself up to. This isn't just a moment's resolve and commitment. How long will it take once word gets out that if you think Zacchaeus has robbed you or falsely accused you, extorted you, he will repay you fourfold. They'll be lining up for months. People will come from the countryside. And Nicodemus will have to face his sin and his guilt because every person he meets with him and every person he pays out is an admission of his wrong. I want you to think how long it's going to take to play out, how public that is. But when repentance happens, when we get convicted of our sin, joyfully, we're not asking what's the least I can do. Zacchaeus volunteers this. It also indicates, I think, that he's had at least some familiarity with John's teaching, John the Baptist. Turn back to Luke 3. Luke chapter 3. If you remember, John the Baptist came preparing the way for Jesus, and the people came out to him, and he, his baptism was a baptism of repentance. Verse, chapter, verse 3, he went into the region proclaiming around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered and said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit with fire. Um, and so with many other exhortations, he preached to them the good news. Look at verse 10 now. The crowd said to him, what then shall we do? So John has called on them to repent. Recognize your sinfulness. Commit to turn from it. They say, okay, John, wh what does that look like for us? And he starts going through in case by case. He answered them. And I want you to notice the, the, the flow here. Whoever has two tunics, he's to share with him who has none. Nicodemus is now going to share with the poor. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to him to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? He said, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. What's the next thing Nicodemus addresses? If I've extorted, if I've taken more than I have a right to. 
And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to The soldiers also asked him, what shall we do? He said, do not extort or falsely accuse. Same word, from money, from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. So what Nicodemus confesses, what he resolves to do is perfectly in keeping in line with the ethic John the Baptist laid out. I think it's likely that Nicodemus either personally heard this or has heard from people who did. He has some idea of the types of things that are being required and he joyfully does it. He joyfully receives Jesus into his home. He volunteers this. Jesus doesn't look at him and say, okay, Zacchaeus, what are you gonna do? When, when a heart is sovereignly convicted of sin, when God removes the veil and we see our condition, the, the parable Jesus told of the man who finds a treasure in a field and in his joy he sells all that he has that he might possess it. This man is going to go from very rich to much more modest means. He immediately is losing 50% of his wealth. He's opened himself up to an indefinite line of people coming to him for restitution dealing with him day in and day out, being reminded of his guilt and of his sin. And he's not sitting there weeping, he's joyful. He publicly confesses this. This is, by the way, another sign of his repentance because you better believe the crowd's gonna hold him to that, right? This isn't something just resolved in his heart to do. He publicly confesses, and it's an evidence of his repentance and faith. He's found something more valuable than his money. He's found something he wants to build his life on more than riches, and it's Christ. So finally, then, we turn to Jesus' righteous vindication of Zacchaeus and himself. So Zacchaeus comes to believe Jesus is Messiah. He, he comes to believe that, that knowing Christ, following Christ, is more valuable than his riches. He, he, he repents. He confesses this. He he will make restitution to those he has wronged. And then Jesus speaks up. Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And this plays out in many ways just like chapter 15. The reason why Jesus was not defiled the reason why Jesus was not morally culpable in a negative sense for eating with, receiving tax collectors and sinners is in every case, the coin that was found is like a sinner who repents. The sheep that was found is like a sinner who repents. The son who came confesses and repents. And so whenever God is dealing with repentant sinners, be they tax collectors or prostitutes or Pharisees, we know this, we sing this, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, these things of God you will not despise. Jesus will eat and stay in Zacchaeus' home because this is a repentant tax collector. And so he announces a blessing first. Today, salvation has come to this house. At least two things wrapped up in this. First, notice that Jesus understands that he himself is the source of salvation. Salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house because Jesus has come to Zacchaeus' house. And ringing through Luke's gospel, whether it be denunciation, the Lord has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David, whether it be in the temple when baby Jesus is worshipped, 
Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Whether it be on the lips of John the Baptist, as he explains, he's not the Christ. What is he there to do? Every valley should be lifted. Every mountain and hill should be made low. The crooked shall become straight. The rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Our God saves. And Jesus came to save. And he announces this salvation for Zacchaeus. God delights in saving the unsavable, in picking the most unlikely people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, not many wise, not many noble, but so that God might receive the glory, so it might be evident that he is the one who is the Savior. And it's not based on human will or effort or works. He makes trophies of grace out of terrible sinners like this. Notice again, the answer is not, again, the answer is not, well, Zacchaeus isn't as bad as you think he is. No, he's probably worse. The answer's never that. Remember when the sinful woman washed Jesus' feet with her hair and his host is scandalized? She's a sinner. Jesus doesn't reason. No, no, she's not as bad as you think she is. He says, no, she's sinned much, but she loves much because she's been forgiven much. Jesus' level of acceptance is not based on who's good and who's bad, but who is forgiven and contrite and who is self-righteous and proud. And wherever Jesus finds humility and faith and repentance, there's acceptance, there's welcome, there's kindness. And wherever he finds self-confidence, self-righteousness, self-centeredness, there is law and rebuke. The blessing today, salvation has come to this house. Of all the houses in Jericho, it's this man's house. A sovereign, divine appointment Jesus knows he must go there, fixed in eternity past. And then Jesus declares his mission. And I just love this. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. I skipped over. He's a son of Abraham. I'm, I'm great form today. Okay. Point A2. As a son of Abraham, Zacchaeus has access to God's promises. We, we can't skip over that. For he also is a son of Abraham. The promises of the Messiah, the promises of salvation came first to Israel. Abraham was going to be blessed and become a blessing, and in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And this tax collector, who is a great sinner, an extortioner, thief, covetous, he's still a son of Abraham. He's still an Israelite. He has access to Israel's Messiah and to the promises if he will but receive them by faith. But I think something more is also going on because the Apostle Paul, who Luke was a traveling companion of, reasons in Galatians that really anyone who exercises faith is a child of Abraham. Abraham's a father, not just genetically making a people, but he's a father in a typological sense that his actions and the way he responds to God and his word, he becomes a father in a sense of all those who have faith like him. And this man who's repentant, and humble in faith, believing in Jesus, is a true son of Abraham. And in some respects, much more so than the crowd about him. Which then brings us to Jesus' mission, that for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost.
This, this is good news. This is the best news. This is Jesus' exact mission given to him by the Lord. And understand this. If you understand anything, why did Jesus come? Did he come to show us a better way? Well, I guess in a sense. Did he come to show God's love? Yes, he did. Did he come to teach an ethic and a way to live that is, is more righteous? I, mean, I suppose you could argue that. But let none of that distract you from the primary centrality of his mission, that he has come to seek and save the lost. He hasn't come to seek and save the good or the better people or the smarter people. He's come to seek and save lost people. That's one of the reasons why beggars and blind people and tax collectors are highlighted as trophies of grace because, don't misunderstand this, God didn't send a rescuer to save the good people or the best people. He sent a rescuer to save lost people. This is Jesus' exact mission. When he began his ministry in his hometown of Nazareth, the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's Jesus' exact mission. And he's seeking sinners. He's seeking lost people. You know, we talk about churches with seeker services. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1 says there's none seeking after God. There's only one seeker in all of creation, and it's not man, it's God. People aren't seeking God. God is seeking people. God sent his son into the world to seek and save the lost. He sent his church into the world to seek and save the lost. Jesus' mission is to seek and save the lost. But moreover, this isn't just unique to Jesus. This is central to the heart and character of God. You know, this, this aspect that Jesus came to seek and save the lost isn't some purely messianic prerogative. God has always revealed himself this way. I mean, think even back to Genesis 3, right? So God tells the man and the woman, in the day you eat of the fruit, you will die. They eat the fruit anyway. They come up with a foolish plan to make some leaves. They hide. What does God do? He comes seeking them, does he not? Genesis 3, 9, the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? God knows perfectly well where they are, but he's seeking them. He wants them to know they're being sought. He doesn't just blast them. God has always been seeking and saving the lost. But, but in using this metaphor, he's using a shepherding metaphor, to turn to one of my absolute favorite passages in the Bible, Ezekiel 34 where you see the Lord's sovereign heart as a shepherd and you see the Messiah, the son of David, executing this ministry. Now, in the first half of Ezekiel 34, God rebukes the would-be shepherds because they don't do what they are supposed to do. 34.4, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured, you have not bound up. The strayed, you have not brought back. The lost, you have not sought. And with force and harshness, you have ruled them. So that's his complaint against the would-be shepherds of Israel. And then God says, in effect, well, I guess I'm going to have to do it myself. So pick it up in verse 11. 
If God's shepherds won't carry out the task, the Lord God will. And I want you to see the heart of our God, his passion for his flock, his commitment to get the job done. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search out for my sheep and I will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among the sheep that has been scattered. So I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them in the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall their grazing land be. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed in the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. And I'll feed them in justice. That is the heart of your God for his people. Jesus, in saying, I've come to seek and save the lost, is saying, in effect, I have come to carry out Ezekiel 34. Because just a little later in this passage, it becomes a little unclear who's going to do the shepherding. In what we just read, God's emphatic, I, I myself. But, but then look at verse 20. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, between because you push with the side and thrust at all the weak with the horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey. I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince of So is God going to shepherd his people, or is his servant David going to shepherd his people? Yes. Because... David's greater son is God. Back to, back to Luke 19. Maybe, maybe you are here this morning like Zacchaeus. You're curious. What do Christians do at church? Maybe you're hoping you won't be noticed. Salvation can come to you and to your house today. If you will humble yourself, if you will turn from whatever your besetting sins are, from whatever gods you've made in your life, and trust in Christ. Commit yourself to him. The Son of Man is still seeking and saving. There will come a day when the Son of Man is done seeking and saving, and he comes to destroy the world and to fight with his enemies. But so far, not today. Not yet, at least. God exalts the humble, and he humbles the proud. The cost of following Jesus is everything. Jesus says you have to renounce all that you have, but you give up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. And if the Lord reveals Christ, it is not a cost, but it is it's nothing. He, Nicodemus, Zacchaeus gladly, publicly confesses his repentance and faith. I heard one preacher say that genuine faith and repentance when it is real is just as notorious as the sin that made it necessary. Nicodemus has changed in a moment from a 
worshiper of money and an extortioner, greedy and a thief, to generous, self-deprecating, willing to publicly confess his wrong, open himself up, and in some respects, even open himself up to people who could take advantage of him, people who could fabricate claims against him. He doesn't care. He has Jesus. Salvation is his. It's coming to his house. The Son of Man tells the crowd, this is exactly what I came here for. This is exactly what I came here to do. Our God is a Savior, and if you will have him, he will save you. I'm going to call the worship team up and ask them to sing our closing song. And as we do, I just uh, pray that if there's anyone here today who has not encountered the the living, the risen Christ, who has not bowed their knee to him, that even now God's grace would go forth. Let's close in a word of prayer, and then we'll sing. Lord God, what good news it is that you are a savior and a seeker of the lost. You're not seeking the good, the people with great excuses. You're seeking broken, ruined, lost people. Help us to recognize our lostness our brokenness, and our need. Help us to turn from the gods that we have fashioned and served who are harsh taskmasters. Help us to turn to the living and true God, your Son, Jesus Christ. May salvation come to our house this day. In Jesus' name, amen.